Hi everyone, this is Klaatu. You're listening to the GNU World Order episode 24 of season 12. This episode, I'd like to talk about GitHub and Git and related topics. First, though, I should I should talk about some listener feedback, and there's been a little bit. So one has been from Sam Bong, or Sam, Sam, let's call him Sam. Sam Brian, actually, let's call him Brian. That's how he signed his email. Brian says that uh, there is a cool little trick and I'm going to try it right now, live, on air, that that I, I honestly had not, I had never heard of this. Or maybe I have, but I've completely forgotten. So apparently, and I'm going to do a, so I'm going to do history in Bash, okay? So I see the la- latest entry was 499, and it reads history. So apparently, if I put a space in front of my command, so now I'll just do a, um, let's do a git init dot, and it says that, I didn't really want to do that, actually. Uh, I'm going to remove that dot git folder. I, I was thinking incorrectly. Um, apparently, if you put a space in front of it, in front of your command, it will not get added to your bash history. And I have just done that, and it added the command to my history. 499 was history, 500 is space git init dot. So I must have something in my bash uh, rc or or something not in my bash rc that makes that makes that happen no matter what um because it says in the ma- in the bash man file um hist control a colon separated list of values controlling how commands are saved in the history list if the list of values include ignore space line which begins with a space character are not saved okay so hist control equals uh dollar sign hist control colon uh, ignore space and I'm going to put an export in front of that and now I'm going to try it again so this time I'm going to do um, FB reader okay so that worked and now I'll do a history and that did not get added to my history list so I guess the lesson there is that in order to if you if you want something not to be added to your history list so of course this was in context of the inmcli command where where you're you're potentially passing a password and i and i said in the episode in the previous episode hey don't do that if you don't want your password to appear in your history file there's probably some fancy way to get rid of that i said but i don't remember what it is or or some such thing so it looks like uh according to brian and brian is correct that you can do this, but you need to um, first do an export of hist control, and I just did that as equals hist control colon ignore space. So that that obviously means that it's not going to blow away all the rest of your hist control, which which may which may be something that you have. There's another really cool hist control option, which is to deduplicate stuff. Uh, by that I mean to deduplicate. So if you run ls and then you run ls again, instead of seeing, you know, entry 500 ls, entry 501 ls, you would just see 500 ls. And, and then it would continue with the next the next different command, which seems pretty pretty useful. So I'm going to actually add that to my bash rc file right now as well. So that's export um, hist control colon ignore space ignore ignore dups ignored ups it's ignore dups I kind of feel like ignore dups or dupes should have um, should have an e in it you know dupes d u p e s but it doesn't uh, so that's fine so ignore I mean um, source bash rc that's what I'm typing in my terminal source tilde slash dot bash rc and now if I do an ls, I'll do an ls, I'll do an ls, I'll do an ls, I'll do an ls, and now I'll do a history. So sure enough, I have source tilde dot bash rc, and then 500, entry 512 is ls, and then 513 is history, even though you and I both know that I did ls like three or four times. So how did we know about those things? Well, obviously I only knew about the ignore space thing because Brian here emailed me and told me which was quite nice and um and and I imagine the way that Brian found out was someone told him but maybe he read the man page and that's what I'm getting around to so believe it or not the the bash man page I mean it's it's a beast of a of a read you know if I do a bash man bash pipe it to uh PR we get that it is 103 pages long printable pages like 80 80 characters wide printable page it's 103 pages so it is a beast of a read and and a lot of times just like ignore space i never thought to never thought to to look for that as an option you know like how do you know what to look for and and apparently i've never been told about that option which is kind of funny but um it it is one thing that that a lot of us observe frequently i think 
that that a lot of the stuff it, it, i don't know it's there really ought to be you know i mean like half the time i think oh those beginning unix intro courses they're just they're so it's all about the minutia and these little skill actually i never think that i always think intro to unix is very important i i don't know that it's the first thing people should 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 be exposed to if that's not why they're coming to linux in the first place so for me I was not a technical person, or I, I did not consider myself a technical person. Some people in my life told me I was a technical person. I didn't agree with that. And and so when I came to Unix, it was like this 180-degree turn about sort of a willful kind of, well, I'm going to I'm going to become a technical person, I said. So when I came to Unix, I was not in it for the cool-looking GNOME desktops or the KDE desktops or even the Enlightenment desktops, although Enlightenment was the first desktop that I ran. Um, I, I was in it very much for, like, show me this code-like stuff that will enable me to do this magical um, rendering thing that I read about in this film magazine about how they were rendering rendering without launching applications. Like that's that's all I really wanted at the end of the day was to be able to render out movies in a an efficient in an efficient and knowledgeable way. And and so I I was all about learning like the the, the terminal. I, I wanted that. And and that's and so the, the first book that I read about Unix was a, a visual quick start guide to to Unix, which is still it's Peach Pit Press, I think it's still out there. You can find it. I mean they, they are they're it's got a recent edition, and it was a great book. You know it was all about like all these commands, and I had no clue really what the end. I mean I knew what my end goal was. I didn't know what their end goal was, and I'm not even sure if the book knew what the end goal was. I mean it was really to teach you how to use a Unix box, like a terminal. Uh, Kind of assuming, I think that you were on some kind of mythical university system or or something, and, and you had to log in through a terminal to get your email and stuff like that. So it was probably outdated even when I read it, but it was great. It was fantastic. So I think if people are coming to Linux for that Unix experience, then great, go for it. Give them that book or give them that intro. And in that intro, make sure that you're telling people smart things. You know, like like the fact that a space in front of the 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 line doesn't add it to a history file, or or that they need to configure the that a space can not um, add that to the history file. What's another one of the the oh common the super common one right? Su. Nobody knows. Well, I mean, I know. Maybe you know. For for years, I did not know. Su doesn't. It, it makes you. It switches the user, but it doesn't inherit that user's environment. So of course, to 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 become root with the root environment, you would do su space dash for some stupid reason dash is just shorthand for bring along the rest of this user like bring the the environment along i don't know why that's a dash it shouldn't be a dash there should there's probably you know what if we looked there's probably a better there's probably a better way to do that and to and to distribute that information um yeah it's it's dash l or dash dash login so there you go su dash dash login gives you that root that that environment of whoever i mean it doesn't have to be a root right it could be s some other user on the system but let's assume that it's a root use the root user so if you do su dash or su dash l or su dash dash login then you're fine you you get the the environment which a lot of times you think well why is that even important well maybe because you you're going to do some build process that the root user needs to know about you know some include directory or some some low level library or application that that is in the root the root user's path, but that path didn't get inherited with, when you logged when you logged in as the root user. Super important. No one no one really talks about that. Like when you when you're first getting introduced. And I get it. I get it. I mean, it's it's a lot of information, right? But I mean, like honestly, why wouldn't you do su login? Like why isn't that the default? Like why aren't we told that by default? Another one, of course, classically is the rm command, which I hate. You should know by now if you've listened to any of these episodes at all. I hate the rm command. It's a terrible command. No one should ever be taught the rm command. So those are three really really good things, right? The, the the sort of how to control uh, some of the history options for bash especially where a password in the terminal would would be a possibility so that would be a, an important thing uh, how to switch user correctly and how to not uh, completely delete and shred 
and burn in a fire your files and, and rather to, to trash them with a sane RM inter intermediary like Trashy at slackermedia.info slash Trashy. Okay, so that was that. Was that. Another um, very kind uh, comment came in over IRC from a user named Blue Radon, and Blue Radon said, I mean, well, first of all, I should, I should just sort of casually mention that Blue Radon may or may not have said that mine was the best Linux podcast out there. So I'm just I'm just relaying the the information to you as stated to me by Blue Radon. I don't know if it's necessarily true, but I will accept it for now. So more more significantly, perhaps Blue Radon said that, um, and this is kind of a quote straight from from IRC, but says that the um, the job market is going to change because computer science departments are filled with students and enrollment is climbing. But for now, uh, a potential employee has just as good of a chance of getting a job as a graduate as long as they can prove technical skill. I think a lot of graduates have skills but lack the intellect to actually use them. I feel like this is a very salient point right now because it's very true that there's a big emphasis on kind of like computer skills. And that's exciting because computers are sort of they're, they're, you know, it's a low barrier to entry. A lot of people can can jump on a computer and do stuff on a computer. There's a bunch of free and open source software out there that people can learn for free without any kind of prerequisite whatsoever. So it's it's an exciting time, and and I think that it's sort of a very healthy and and I guess for lack of a better term, democratized environment. And that's exciting. I like that. I like to know that people, that everyone can contribute to this thing if, if they want to. And I think the danger is that, that there's such an emphasis on it that people, like, you know, the, the, the adults in the world, like, whatever that means, the, the people high up trying to sort of make sure that all the masses sort of get herded into the right barn, that they're, they're, they're losing sight of the fact that, first of all, not everyone wants to go into computing. Not everyone can go into computing. Like, I mean, it's a it's a broad market. Like, there's a lot of computers a lot of, in a lot of places, but that doesn't mean that everyone, like, absolutely everyone needs to learn how to program. I mean, I'm, I'm not arguing that people should learn more about computers and understand how they work, and maybe an introduction on, on how a program works, just so people stop... Um, sort of, uh, I guess, either demo de demonizing or anthropomorphizing computers or their devices. You know, I mean, people really struggle with concepts about computers sometimes. Sort of like, yeah, that computer doesn't actually hate you. I mean, it's it is a computer. You know, or, or yeah, the computer is not getting filled up with with too much data. You, you, it's just that you are installing applications that do not function you, you you're you're installing very dodgy software whatever so you, i mean you've you've been there you've you've been around these people so you know there's this there's this problem ever everyone's like oh you got to go into computers well no not everyone needs to go into computers but there's also this problem of, of the people who do want to go to com into computers are very often being herded toward computers without sort of that that initial groundwork of hey you know what before you jump head first into writing instructions on how to solve a problem maybe we should talk a little bit about what it means to solve a problem and how you should go about planning on solving a problem and, and how you determine what the solution to that problem even may be. And so people are getting sort of taught this these programming languages and all of these these things and nobody's ever stopping to to just sort of like to to just sit back and just kind of make sure that people understand that before they before jumping in and and typing a bunch of stuff on the computer they should you know, make sure it's plugged in. You know, that's sort of that that kind of like there's a there's a process here. There 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 are steps that you take when you are trying to solve a problem. There are tests that you need to do. I guess it's kind of like the scientific method, whatever that is. I've heard about it, and you're supposed to like come up with these theories, and then you're supposed to test them, or like these hypotheses, and then you test them, or something like that. And once it all sort of once once you have a pretty good framework of yeah, it seems like this is pretty much how it. It happens every single time. Then you go and you, you know, implement the thing, like whatever it is, whether you're fixing something or whether you're, you're, you know, growing something or you're killing something like a, you know, antibiotic or something like that's, that's, that's kind of how you're supposed to do it. And we just don't, I don't get the sense that many of us get that kind of training. And maybe some people do, like maybe if you were a lucky kid and you did better in math and science in your 
your secondary education school or whatever, you know, your junior high or high school, whatever it's called where you are, then maybe maybe you did get the the curriculum that applies to real life. But for for people who sort of slipped under the cracks or through the cracks, whether whether it was because we were lazy during school or bored during school or I don't know, didn't have the the right mix of learning styles or because we moved around every two years and had to restart school uh, every two years. Whatever the case may have been, not everyone not everyone gets that that intro to, hey, here's basic problem solving. Read up on it, get get familiar with it. Let's do some let's do some exercises to to emulate that. Let's play, you know, let's play some analog games that that illustrate these these things or let's 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 solve some puzzles in the real world and then and then we can start transferring them into these scripted things that repeat an action over and over again and then finally i got an email tip from josh from webhosting.coop about a, a little tool called nm2e so network manager tui so that's the the little terminal text i guess what is it text inner text user interface terminal user interface i don't know but it's it's where you kind of see the incursus interface you know for a tool so in m2e rather than in mcli you can install uh, i guess the the package at least on red hat is network manager dash tui and i haven't really looked into where else it is available because i i just got this email like just now sitting down to record this episode so in m2e um at the time of the the um the documentation the TUI doesn't necessarily support all types of connections, so very specifically, you cannot edit a VPN, which, I mean, that's not a big deal. You can usually edit VPNs in the VPN configuration file, so that's not really a, a, a deal breaker for me. Um, but you also can't do from NMTUI wireless network connections using WPA Enterprise um, or Ethernet connections using 802.1x. So yeah, there are some edge cases there that it can't cover right now yet, but I think it'll probably get integrated eventually, and I think they are kind of edge cases. I don't think... I mean, unless you just live in a place where it's like, this is your connection, and it happens to be one of those three. But otherwise, it's probably worth checking out if you want a TUI. I mean, if not, just stick with NMCLI, and you're good to go. But NMTUI exists as well, so check that out. That's all all the the listener feedback that I have, I do also have here a cup of coffee, and I am going to drink it. I suggest you obtain yourself a cup of coffee and do the same. coffee let's talk about github so github in case you haven't heard and and certainly if you're listening to this sometime way in the future i'm sure you've certainly heard but in case you haven't heard as of this recording github has been purchased by microsoft now i don't know if you remember but a couple of years ago microsoft opened a kind of a competitor to github and gitlab and all these online quote-unquote social coding sites it was called codeplex and apparently it was an okay service like it was it was i guess supportive of open source you know it was a public repository for code. I never used it. I had no reason to use it. There are lots of other options without having to sign up for a Microsoft site, and there was just no reason for me to do that. And and I, now that it's gone, I, I guess I kind of wish I'd poked around, not, not to use it really, but just to kind of see what they were encouraging behind the scenes. For instance, when you, when you created a new... Rep- well, first of all, was it Git? And then secondly, when you created a new repository, what, what license did it default to? Just curious. But anyway, I never used it. It was called CodePlex. People didn't seem to hate it. I never, I didn't hear complaints about it. I heard a few good things about it, and mostly I really just didn't hear anything about it at all. Well, they've gotten rid of that, and they went and purchased GitHub. And while a lot of people are taking this as big news, I kind of have to sit back and wonder if GitHub is worth getting upset over at all. And, and I'm not being dismissive of this. 
this, actually. I'm just, that is my, my initial reaction is very much, do we care or certainly do I care? GitHub has always, I've never really been a fan of GitHub. And, and I do mean very specifically GitHub. As you may or may not know, GitHub is not open source. It is what they call open core, which is this kind of supremely sort of backward speech for not open source. So in open core, meaning the actual core of the thing is not open. It makes no sense. I mean, it's it's really, really deceptive terminology and something that someone came up with to make things sound really exciting and like, oh, we're open. We're not open source, but we're open core, as if to imply the important parts are open source. And certainly in GitHub's case, nothing could be farther from the truth. The important part, the part that you would you would need for you would need in order to have a functional instance is not is not open. So that's kind of silly to call it open core, I I think. But people call it open core. Now, GitLab by contrast, GitLab and not GitHub is also open core. So they have they maintain a a closed source version of GitLab within their own building and and then they they also have their community edition which is open source and you can take the community edition and run it privately or or publicly for for all I care. I mean, you can do it whatever you want with it. There are just little features in the, the closed source for I mean I mean the open core version that you don't get in the community version. A lot of people have problems with that, and frankly, I never really did have a problem with that. I mean, it would be cool if it was just I guess it would be cool if it was all open source all the time. But a lot of the features from the open core version, the the, the enterprise edition, make their way over to the community edition eventually anyway. And I don't know, I just for some reason I don't I, that doesn't really offend me that much. Like, I, I get that people want the process of open source to be to be from start to finish, but uh, for me, I don't know that I'm completely... I, I don't know how how sold I am and how rigid I can be on that. Like, if, if someone... What's the difference between GitLab saying, okay, well, we're working on features, they're not open source yet, we're selling them, and eventually we'll make them open, and just someone sitting in their bedroom making something really cool but not posting it publicly yet? I mean, are you going to get angry at that person? for not being open source and not opening their code right away. Like, I kind of understand that, to be honest. And it, I think it is, it's part of the process. I, I know that there are very good arguments against that, and and I recognize that, and I'm, I'm open to those arguments. But in terms of sort of me being upset about GitLab not being open from sort of like the, the very first letter of code that is being written on some feature, I don't know, I don't, I, it doesn't really bother me that much. So that's just how GitLab works. GitHub, though, specifically, Basically, GitHub is closed source, as I've said, and and they have they have spoken very proudly and firmly on the topic of being closed source or or open core, as they say. I mean, they, it's it's really it's a it is there's a blog post by the GitHub you know founder or previous CEO talking about how open core is the correct model for open for open source businesses like like you have to keep your special sauce closed in order to generate revenue now famously apparently github was losing millions of dollars every year and and it's funny how business economics i i never took economics but it really is very puzzling to me how a company that is losing millions of dollars is then worth several billion dollars when they're purchased it just doesn't make any sense to me but i'm sure there's some magical spreadsheet thing that economists do to make it all make sense. So anyway, GitHub, losing money, not open source anyway, now purchased by Microsoft. Is it worth even lamenting at all? GitHub, from my point of view, is is exactly this. It is a an inconvenient web interface to what is naturally a very convenient application, Git. Git is flexible enough to integrate into several kinds of workflows, and I like that about Git. GitHub kind of gets plopped down on your desk, and it very insistently forces you to use it one specific way. I mean, sure, you can push and pull and do some things from your terminal, but when it comes to actually contributing to code that exists 
on GitHub, which ostensibly is why it's there and why you are using GitHub at all, you have to do it in a very specific way, and that specific way is that you quote-unquote, these are very significant quotes, you quote-fork-unquote a project. That is not what forking is. You and I probably know this if you've been in the software industry for even just three, four, four years, maybe longer now because GitHub's been around, but if you've been around for a while, you know that that's not what forking usually means. People don't say, I'm going to fork this project when they when they mean, oh, I'll take a look at your code and see if I have any improvements that I can make. That's not a fork. So that's a clone in Git parlance, and in other terminology it might be anything else, but it's, it's never fork. Fork is a very specific thing in software where you take a code base and you go in a different direction than the way that it is traveling. Like a road, a fork in a road, you can't go both, you can't take both paths. There's a fork in that path. So you have to choose one or the other. That's what a fork is. So when you fork, quote-unquote, a project on GitHub, it actually usually means a friendly means of getting a copy of the code, changing it, and then submitting it back to the project. So there's a lot of confusion about that terminology thanks to GitHub. So I'll people will say that they're going to fork something, and you kind of have to stop and figure out whether they just mean they're going to clone it and send you patches, or if they're forking it because they don't like the way that you are doing things and they're walking away with a copy of your code, which is just fine. It's just it certainly conveys a different spirit of collaboration or or lack of collaboration. That's not the only terminology that they confuse. Of course, they also confuse the very term Git. And this is an interesting one. I kind of sat down after all of this happened and and sort of suddenly it just popped into my head. Why does GitHub get to use the term Git in their name? I mean, I understand that trademark law is a little bit fuzzy and interpretive and subjective. I mean, I guess law is, but I mean, trademark law specifically. It, it, it allows for certain overlap as long as there's a differentiation. So if, if you have a product named Foo and there's another product in a completely different industry also called Foo, there's no, you're not colliding, you're in different namespaces. But Git and GitHub are very much in the same namespace. I mean, GitHub even uses Git. So how were they able to grab the term Git and put it into their product name and trademark their product name? How did that happen? How does that work? Turns out, and I'll put a link to this email uh, chain in the show notes, but it turns out that that, uh, GitHub, back in 2008, trademarked the name GitHub. Git, the project Git, had not trademarked their name yet. Now, they had prior art and and proof that they had been using Git, you know, so they weren't, it wasn't a, a question of, oh my gosh, who owns the word Git now? It was simply that GitHub happened to go through the legal paperwork to get their name and their logo and stuff, uh, trade their little Octocat logo trademarked before actually Git did. So then finally the Git project got around to making it official and they worked with the software conservancy to the free software conservancy to to get a trademark on the term git but what they did was very explicitly they looked at specific projects and a couple of different ones were named git github gitlab gitolite libgit uh, a couple of different ones pro- probably that i'm forgetting but those were definitely in the list and they they looked at those projects and said well they're projects they've started from from different you know at different times they've they've existed and they've all they may or may not have a git a, a trademark on their name but they're using git and it would be really not cool of us to go after them now and start like trying to make them adhere to something to a trademark policy that didn't exist when they started existing so so they've kind of got a um a a specific grant for these projects github included to use the the name git freely so that doesn't change of course the fact that many people today and you can go out into the into like schools and and probably various companies and 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 meet these people but there are people certainly in my life and and I've heard other people say the same thing who honestly and earnestly believe no matter what I tell them that GitHub is Git meaning that in their mind GitHub is is Git and like when I do something in a terminal with Git they just think that that's kind of like an advanced tool like a power user version of GitHub it doesn't help that when you install the company sanctioned git client the desktop client from from github so i think it's called github desktop it's not a very good tool i think i've complained about it before on this show but if you install that which by the way is only available for windows and mac 
not for Linux, uh, you install this GitHub desktop application. It comes, at least for the Windows version, it comes with a, um, a, a terminal application called like Git or Git Bash or Bash Git or something like that, where you launch this terminal application on your Windows machine and it, it is a Git prompt or, or a Git interface. You know, you can, you can do Git things inside of that terminal. So not only do certainly Windows users inherit this magical git command from github but like that th that's the only you know i mean there's that's the source of everything for them the git github is git so it's really annoying i guess that 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 terminology has has gotten confused as well and i guess you could argue that that's not github's fault or anything like that and and that's fine i mean i, I i'll admit i i never really saw a a campaign to try to erase git and to pretend like github is the actual tool i'm just stating that this is a problem that that terminology has gotten very very confused and and more, more importantly, I guess, than just the terminology, the workflow. Like, you have to go and, and fork projects, which means that you're making a copy of a repository, and then you have to go through the GitHub interface to do what's called a pull request, which doesn't exist in the Git world. There is no such thing as a pull request. You have a merge, you have a push, you have things like that, but you don't have a pull request. And, and a pull request, the concept can be implemented elsewhere. I had a job back in 2009 that, that when, when you pushed, you pushed code to, to the git server to the local git server in in the office it would first you first of all you had to get it signed off you had to get a sign off from your immediate superior or or from a colleague that was authorized and and then you could push it and and your push did not get automatically merged into master it, it went to a code review and that code reviewer would look at what you you had done and, and do the merge and and then it would go into master and that's how it worked and it was all done in pure git it was a really slick system GitHub mandates that you go through their little web UI, and, and I think the goal of having a web UI to simplify it for new users who don't necessarily know Git very well yet, I think that's an admirable goal, but there are better ways to do it, and ways that don't sacrifice flexibility. For instance, you could have a web form that takes just a monolithic diff file, like a, a big patch file, and, and parses that. I mean, it, it, it could be really simple and something that would let both new users and experienced users send patches without, you know, getting permission to actually commit to a master branch. So it's very annoying, GitHub. And, and I'm not really, I am certainly not ever, have never been sold on GitHub as an interface or as a force in the world because it's it's just, it hasn't done me any favors, really. It's a confused terminology. It, it, it is closed source and it forces me to use it in a very specific way. So basically GitHub is annoying. So is it worth getting upset that it's being uh, literally owned by a, a fairly large corporation with a pretty bad track record? Well, that's the other side of all of this, right? Is is that if it was just any other company, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. If SourceForge, for instance, had come along and purchased GitHub, I don't think that many people would have gotten upset. I mean, some might, because some people have, burnt, have been burned by, for instance, SourceForge. Forge. But I mean, and you can insert any any company name like Red Hat. What if Red Hat had come or Canonical? What if Canonical had had purchased GitHub? There, there probably would have been fewer fewer reports of of outrage. So what about Microsoft? What about Microsoft owning GitHub? Well, first of all, people say that this is this is the new Microsoft. This isn't the old Microsoft. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this. Microsoft is a different company now. People say they like open source. I mean, heck, Microsoft says they like open source. They've got big stickers and banners and advertising campaigns at conferences saying very emphatically that they really like open source. And I've heard people that I really, really respect say exactly that, that Microsoft is a different company now. It's a completely changed and reformed company. There are people within Microsoft who really love open source, and that CEO is completely different than Balmer or from Gates. He's a completely different person, and he's really sincere about open source. And this is ex these are very exciting times. And like I say, those are I've heard this from people who I who I trust and respect. So who am I to argue with this idea that Microsoft has changed? Well, first of all, I I could argue that point. Like no disrespect to these people whose names I have not even given, who I respect, but it just hasn't been that long. I mean, I myself have not been in open source 
that long. Like, if you look at the dates of this podcast, the beginning of this podcast, and whatever else I was doing pre, like on Linux Reality and Hacker Public Radio, if you look at those timestamps, you will see that I've not really been involved in open source for that long. Now, I mean, longer than some, I guess, but certainly not a super long time. And I remember when Microsoft was threatening to sue or actively suing companies, and sometimes individuals, like individual developers, for daring to sort of go against Microsoft's imagined authority. I mean, do you remember the Xandros Linux distribution? Probably not, but I mean, they kind of, from what I could tell, they kind of went away because of Microsoft. Now, you could probably argue that there was something else going on, but I mean, it was certainly oddly timed that Microsoft was just at that moment, just during that time period, they were they were coercing companies to sign an agreement, sort of an agreement between Microsoft and, and Linux, because it was said very clearly that Linux was infringing upon Microsoft intellectual property. I mean, they couldn't get anybody on, on actual code theft, but it was just like this generic, well, intellectual property. So, I mean, people were being coerced and sued and and shut down because of Microsoft, and that was within the past 10 years, you know? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. And there are probably even more recent examples if you really wanted to think about it. And as someone pointed out to me, too, there's a lot of patent stuff going on that, that most of us aren't really aware of. It just kind of happens in the background. It just happens. It's just one of those things that goes on. I mean, there are companies that do like open source that actively do not just arbitrarily pursue patent law or, or intellectual property theft or, or whatever. But okay, maybe I am just being vindictive. I mean, after all, isn't Microsoft coming around to open source? Isn't that one of the win conditions of open source? Like, haven't we said for for decades probably that that the the, the, the win when Linux wins and by Linux I just sort of mean open source it is when Microsoft has come around to open source right I mean that there were one of the big the big goals they were the, the things that that everyone wanted to topple and I mean to be fair you don't literally have to topple Microsoft to win over Microsoft it doesn't it, it isn't the company itself it's not like the the walls of that corporation that need to be literally torn down, it was the closedness of that company. So if they truly are coming around to open source and, and saying that they want to partake in open source, then isn't that a great thing? Doesn't that mean open source has therefore won? Like, didn't didn't isn't this winning for us isn't this what it looks like like why would we not want microsoft to be part of open source like that's counter to the idea of open source this is everything open source ever wanted was for microsoft to to be part of the scene to come around to to open source so this is a good thing this is actually really positive that open source that that microsoft has has purchased github and that they are that they are displaying their love for open source i mean what else would their love for open source look like i mean we we very frequently complain when companies don't pay for open source right i mean just a couple of years ago now there was that big outrage and uproar over open ssl open ssl turns out to be horribly insecure nobody likes it anymore who who do we blame? Well, let's blame all the companies that have been using OpenSSL for who knows how long, but haven't paid even a dime towards its development or maintenance. I mean, that was a big news item, and people really kind of got upset over it, and I think rightfully so. But, I mean, this is what Microsoft is doing now, right? They're saying, yes, we do like open source. Here's this company that's not doing so well. So what we're going to do is bring it into our fold. And we will bolster it by being a successful company ourselves. And I think there's a lot of, there's, there's an argument there. I mean, Red Hat is the reason, I think arguably, is the reason that Fedora exists. Maybe it's not the reason, but it's a big reason that Fedora exists. Fedora gets a lot of work done on Red Hat's dime, whether it's actually people sitting in chairs coding, or whether it's the, all the resource hosting, or whether it is the all the conferences and the the, the ambassador program where people just, they just get flown to conferences because they're part of Fedora. They don't have to pay for it. Red Hat just just pays for that. And, and you can argue that Red Hat 
you know, the the way that they do their business, maybe they're not, maybe, maybe you have problems with that. Maybe you don't like the Red Hat subscription network. Maybe you're not a fan of that model. Maybe that to you is practically as bad as open core. But I don't know, maybe, maybe that is a sacrifice that in the modern business world we have to make. There needs to be some kind of support system for all the cool zero dollar stuff and open source stuff that we all enjoy. And anyway, does it even matter whether it's Microsoft or Canonical or just some nameless venture capitalist? I mean, who was paying the bills at GitHub before? I mean, apparently, apparently it's been around for, I think, seven or ten years or something, and and it, it hasn't really made a whole lot of money. It's still being called a startup, and it's actively losing, I think they said, like, $66 million loss in, in either last year or the year before was what they what they had quoted to business gods. So, I mean, it, was, it wasn't exactly an open-source success story. In fact, it wasn't open-source at all, so, so it's just not... It, it isn't a, a thing that can exist without some kind of support structure. That much is pretty obvious. GitLab apparently is doing better. I mean, I know that they have their Enterprise Edition. I don't know how much they're surviving off of that and how much they're surviving off of other things like venture capitalists. But GitHub was basically... If you believe what you read, it was basically the, the the hobby project of some people who were throwing money at tech. And apparently they were still doing that at the time of the acquisition. And so now Microsoft will be throwing money at tech. But I keep going back to this whole changed Microsoft thing. This new, exciting, new, visionary, open-source-friendly Microsoft. I mean, okay, they love open-source. Now they own GitHub, which to a lot of people is not only Git, but it kind of is open-source. I mean it's that big of a deal now. Like, GitHub is is almost, not quite, but almost synonymous with open source, the word open source. And I think for a lot of people, that's what we're afraid of. Like, when, when, when we see that Microsoft has purchased GitHub, it's not really GitHub that we're lamenting. It is the reputation of GitHub. It is the thing that you can point to, to, to new and up-and-coming developers, if not the general public, to, to say, yes, that's, that, like, see, see how this site is healthy and big and there are lots of people there partaking? Well, that's open source. That's how open source works. People come together in in droves, like thousands of people, probably millions, come together and they they share code with each other. This is how it works, and that's what that was easy. That was an easy sort of thing that we could point to together and and demonstrate that all this open source talk that we're always talking isn't actually crazy talk. It's a working functional thing. Now if someone were to ever ask, cool, so how do I download GitHub and throw my own instance of it online? Then we would get then a little bit awkward, right? Uh, well, actually there's something like GitHub that you could do. GitLab is not quite as popular, doesn't have the cool cat-based logo. It's got a fox which is like a cat. Um, yeah, not so good, right? And and actually, there there's a really really interesting tool uh, uh, post blog post by Benjamin Mako Hill, which I will link to in the show notes, called "Free Software Needs Free Tools," and he talks about this sort of morality tale that is so on the nose that you'd almost think that he made it up if you couldn't actually just go online and look up the 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 story and and look at the mailing lists for yourself. But apparently, a long time ago, when the Linux back in 2002, actually, the Linux kernel developing the development team was using this this ancient ancient version control system called CVS. You may have heard of it. You may not have. I don't think I've ever used it. But it was old. They needed something better, and so they got these free accounts at this new hot new version control system thing that came on the scene called Bitkeeper. Now Bitkeeper was closed source. So for the Linux kernel to say, yeah, we'll put all of our code on your servers was a big deal. It was such a big deal, in fact, that a lot of the kernel developers refused, flat out refused, to use it. They said, hey, we will continue to send Linus uh, the patches for, of the code that we do, but we're not going to go and interface with BitKeeper. And it was sort of because of that that Andrew Andrew Trigel, Trigel who you may have heard of, may not have, he's kind of been around forever, and he, he went on to BitKeeper through, I think, Telnet, from what I heard, and kind of started poking around at some of the protocols to see how it worked. Because that's what hackers do. I don't remember. I don't know. I've read a couple of different things, and I don't. I don't remember if I actually got a definitive version of the story. Some say that he was developing a front end, and some say he was going to re-implement the entire thing. Like he was just reverse engineering it so he could make his own free copy of Bitkeeper. I'm not sure which which it is. 
Either way, the owner of BitKeeper got super angry and said, okay, your free accounts are now all closed. Get your kernel code off my servers and go do your own thing. And that's exactly what they did. The kernel developers had to develop their own version control system, which was called Git. Now, I think it's supremely, supremely ironic or puzzling or something that today we are doing an exact same copy. Well, not an exact same copy of that, right? So the kernel has a copy of its code on GitHub, but it doesn't actually develop on GitHub, which for the record is how I've always used GitHub. I don't actually use GitHub. I I use it as a backup space because in Git it's trivial, and I'll, I'll include a, sh a show, a Hacker Public Radio show that I did on on how to do this. It's quite trivial to just configure your Git repository so that it pushes to several different places. So you can get an account at GitLab, you can get an account on GitHub, you can get an account on notabug.org, you can get an account all kinds of places and, and just do a Git push to several different mirrors and now you've got your code on all kinds of places. And and for a lot of people that at the end of the day is the appeal of GitHub. It's not just the thing that you can point to to say, look, open source is healthy. It's also a place that you can, you can get a lot of eyes on your code. Your code can be discovered by strangers, complete strangers, and you can get patches from complete strangers. People you've never knew existed can look at your code, they can quote-unquote fork it, and make changes, and then submit the changes back to you, and your code just got better because some random person decided to add a feature. It's, it's really, really satisfying, and it has happened. It's happened to me. I've gotten patches from complete strangers on both GitHub and GitLab, for the record, so I can't really say that GitHub necessarily, because of all of its many numbers, has actually done me any better than GitLab. But the more eyes, I think, generally speaking, the better. I mean, that is kind of the one of the underlying philosophies of open source, is that if the source is out there, then it has a better chance of being improved. So now that GitHub is a Microsoft project, how is any of that going to change? Well, that's the thing. We don't really know if it's going to change. I mean, Microsoft could theoretically be completely hands-off and really just pay for GitHub. They could simply be paying the bills and they could let everything continue as normal. Now we already know that that is not how, not exactly how it's going to happen because they, they have appointed a, uh, a project manager for GitHub from Microsoft. I mean, they're a big company, so I, I guess that sort of has to happen. I mean, you have to report to someone, right? They can't just, they're not going to just buy the company and then forget that you exist. I mean, there's a reporting process. So maybe that's all this person is. I don't know. But but there's already, you know, been nominal changes, at least, in, in structure. So so there's that. But maybe everything else will basically remain the same. We we don't know yet. And we may not know, you know, for, for two years. I mean, we don't really know how long it's going to take for Microsoft to either drive GitHub into sort of a Microsoft blur or for them to not do anything. And even then, I guess we'll never really know what they're going to do with it. The problem, I think, really, at the end of the day, though, is that Microsoft hasn't built up any kind of trust with the open source community. And you can tell me that Microsoft has changed and that there are good people there and that that the CEO has, is is different than any previous CEO, but Microsoft is still a big company. And even if the CEO is a hardliner and just goes full force towards open source, it's still a company, meaning that that CEO isn't going to be CEO forever. And the, the open source allies that you have in the company are not going to be there forever. Things can change in a company, just like they can with any open source project. The difference is that an open source project has many owners. That's you and me and everyone else who, who has access to the code, which is everyone with a computer. But some project that is owned part and parcel by one company, it might be healthy today, it might be healthy a year from now, it might be healthy three years from now, but things can change. And then there's no recourse for anybody. It's just all over. The project is ruined. Now keeping in mind that nobody ever had a guarantee about GitHub in the first place, I think that the Microsoft purchase is mostly just insult on injury. It, it isn't anything really different than what we had before. There's GitHub, it's closed, it is not available to us, it is not controlled by us, it cannot be backed up by us, not GitHub itself anyway. Obviously the data can be, but but the service itself is under no one, is, is not under community control. It is, it is owned by someone else. So nothing has changed. 
from my perspective. Microsoft, on the other hand, could use this opportunity to change everything. And I mean they could make a huge impact on a lot of different things. First of all, they could change the way people see them. They've been saying for years now that they love open source, and they're at a unique position now because they've just purchased a big chunk of what to many people is open source. Imagine what Microsoft, what people would think of Microsoft if Microsoft open sourced Windows and put the source code on GitHub. Imagine what they would think if people, if Microsoft opened Microsoft Office and put the code on GitHub. Imagine what people would think within the open source community especially if Microsoft announced that they were going to open source GitHub finally. It would do a lot to repair a very, very tarnished reputation that they have well earned, by the way. With their track record, they are definitely, definitely burdened with changing people's minds, with more than just marketing talk. If Microsoft truly wants to win over the open source community, they don't need to just be good stewards of GitHub, as if though the open source community actually had any ownership of GitHub in the first place. They need to change things. They need to show the community that their love for open source runs really deep, and they need to open source some of their stuff. Not just tokens. I'm talking about stuff that matters, because that's what open source developers and open source users do every day. The bulk of us, you and me, dear listener, we run open source. We rely on open source. If open source went away, we would be in trouble. We've invested a lot into open source. We need to see that kind of investment from Microsoft. We know that a billion dollars to Microsoft isn't an investment. That's chump change. What we need to see is Microsoft putting Microsoft on the line for open source. I think that's pretty much everything I have to say. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Clatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Clatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Clatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. virtually maintenance-free. Clothing of the non-disposable variety will be stored in cleaning closets where a chemical vapor atmosphere and an ultrasonic vibrator will remove dirt particles.